This is Duke University. My name is Greg Dees. I'm the faculty director of the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship here at the Fuqua School of Business. Um, it's my honor tonight to introduce our special guest, David Bornstein. Before I do that, I want to welcome those of you who are not Fuqua, Fuqua related or connected who've come over uh, to Fuqua tonight. Um, we hope that you'll come back again. Uh, case uh, plans additional events, and many of these are open to the public. I believe uh, right beside the door at, a, at the table we have a, a list of upcoming case events as well as a, a handout to explain what our center uh, does. So please, uh, if you're not from Fuqua, pick those up and we'd love to have you come back. Well, this is a special honor to introduce David. Uh, I first came across David's work, oh, it was 1995, I think, uh, article in the Atlantic Monthly, entitled, the Barefoot Bank with Cheek. Pretty strange title. Curious enough, I felt I should read it. Uh, wonderful story about Grameen Bank in Bangladesh and the work of Muhammad Yunus at Grameen Bank. I still use that article as the first reading in my course. So those of you who've taken my course know that. Those of you who are planning to take it uh, in term four, you can read ahead and read David's article if you can get your hands on it. I think it's online. I think you can actually get it off the archives at, at Atlantic. Uh, and shortly after that, David published a book expanding on this story of Grameen Bank called The Price of a Dream. Um, it was probably the next year, maybe 96. Uh, a powerful book, one that I highly recommend. It has recently been reissued by Oxford University Press in a, a lovely paperback edition. Um, so, so it's affordable and accessible, and you can find it at many, uh, many bookstores. Um, it's, it's a powerful book. Now, a few years later, I saw another article by David in the Atlantic Monthly, and this one was on uh, Bill Drayton, the founder of Ashoka. Uh, again, another powerful, insightful article, and not surprisingly, shortly thereafter came a book called How to Change the World, Social Entrepreneurs and the Power of New Ideas. This book helped put the notion of social entrepreneurship on the map. It generated discussion in all sorts of publications around the world. The book was widely reviewed. David was uh, interviewed on NPR, uh, quoted in uh, the New York Times, and a term that had, had been um, familiar to only a handful of folks was now commonly coming up in the press. And, and we certainly owe a great deal of that to, to David's work and David's book, uh, which brought a great deal of attention to the field. Now, I used to introduce David as the leading journalist in social entrepreneurship, but that title doesn't do justice. Uh, David is not simply a journalist. He certainly is that, and, and an excellent uh, journalist. Uh, but he's also a thought leader in this field. He, he continues to push the thinking of all of us who work in this area. Um, at just about any gathering, we try to see if we can get David there uh, to help push our thinking. Um, I'm eagerly awaiting the next Atlantic article, which will precede the next book, if it turns out to go in that fashion, um, because I know it's going to be deeply insightful. I've had the good fortune over the last couple of years of getting to know David 
at a more personal level, and what I can tell you is that he is one of the most thoughtful, insightful, and, and just very approachable um, uh, and positive people I know in this field. It's easy to impress people that you're smart by being cynical and critical. David uh, can impress you that he's smart by being very positive and optimistic and insightful about what's happening in social entrepreneurship, and I think that's unique. Um, so without any further ado, I'd like to turn it over to David Bornstein. Welcome, David. Well, I think I'll stop right here because it can only go downhill. Uh, it's it's uh, really a pleasure to be here. I love I love tell. I'm, I'm basically a storyteller. I think I'm now going to just sort of go by that uh, by that appellation. Uh, I really love finding things of value and beauty, and trying to to bring them up into the world so that people can see them. Kind of like a dowser with a divining rod, sort of trying to find something hidden under under the ground. Uh, and actually, there's a lot right now because. Uh, we live, in, we live in a world right now where there's a kind of hidden history being written. And it's, uh, I think it's probably one of, one of the most important changes in the world today, the way problems are being solved and the way power is being individualized or, or concentrated in small groups who, who can go around and, and attack problems with uh, unusual, surprising efficacy and now we're faced with the great challenge of how do we scale that up? How do we actually have the impact that we need to have? So what I want to do is just give two basic ideas. One is I want to give a sense of how the world is changing and how it's changing in a surprising way and what that means for every individual in this, in this room. And what I mean is what the world means to you, what you think about the world, what you think about the, the risks are in, in life, the kinds of things you might want to study or work in, and what you might even think about doing when in your 60s or 70s and so forth. Uh, so uh, Greg mentioned the Grameen Bank, which was the subject of my first book. Uh, how many people here know about the Grameen Bank to say, I, I know about it? Okay. Who, how many people, who, who knows how many borrowers the Grameen Bank has today? Does anybody know? Uh, that was last year. It's, it's, it's over 5 million. <laughs> You're very good. So it's over 5 million. And I'm asking that, I, I'm saying that because when, when I used to quote for years, I was quoting, oh, the Grameen Bank is 3.2 million borrowers because I had neglected for six months to check my, uh, my, uh, the internet to just see what they're at. And I was surprised to see that they're actually now at 5 million borrowers, which is uh, basically 20% of all the families in Bangladesh. And that microcredit the idea that the Grameen Bank really pioneered and spread as a mass strategy is now reaching 14 million families in Bangladesh, which is uh, approaching 55 or 60 percent of all the people in the country. Most of that growth has just been in the last five years. And the idea of microcredit worldwide is now reaching about 100 million families, which is about a half a billion people who essentially have institutional relationships where they have access to ongoing access to credit at a fair price and can do something. Um, now this is, most of this has changed, like I said, in the past five years. As recently as 1997, when the first microcredit summit uh, occurred in Washington, the total was 13 million families globally. So that's uh, 
nine years ago, and today it's, it's 100 million. Now, this is a very knowledgeable audience because I've, I, give, I talk to people all around uh, the world these days. You know, I, I travel a lot and I talk to different groups, and usually it's only 10 or 20% of the people in the room raise their hand. Now, everybody is very politically polarized. Everybody's angry about something. That's something you, you very quickly discover. But most people don't have a sense of what's actually happen happening at the institutional level that's really dramatically changing the world and the opportunities for people, you know, especially those, those half a billion people. Uh, the world has really changed in their lives very dramatically in Bangladesh, in India, in developing countries across Latin America. So when I first went to Bangladesh to... Uh, to understand the Grameen Bank, or to, I was just a young journalist, as Greg said. I, had, I really just went there with a backpack, thinking I'll get a good experience, and maybe a story will come out of it. Because truthfully, I didn't believe it was possible. I had read a magazine article about the Grameen Bank, and, and it said it's lending money. At the time, it was 490,000 women. It said it had a repayment rate of about 97%. I was skeptical about that. It said the women were moving out of poverty. I thought, I was skeptical about that. I mean, the whole thing sounded like a fiction. But I figured, you know, I, I wasn't that happy as a journalist at the time. I was writing articles for newspapers in New York. Uh, I found it a little bit tiresome to write stories of the same nature over and over again. I covered a lot of murders. I covered uh, the Dinkins administration when it, was, uh, when it was in office. And really, I wasn't seeing a lot of stuff that was new in my life. So when I heard about this organization, I figured, you know what, I'm just going to go to Bangladesh. And uh, I was fortunate because I could do that. I, my previous career was as a computer programmer. I actually studied business, and I, I did a degree in uh, McGill Management in Montreal, where I grew up. And my, I worked for four years as a, as a programmer, starting with you know, basic programming language and Fortran and COBOL and, and all of the really old languages that, that are in sort of the history of computers now. Uh, but I was able to go back to my job and very quickly earn $6,000 living with my parents so I can have enough money to go to Bangladesh and just crash out for five months and go to villages. And I have to say that, that it, you know, if I, when, you know, when sometimes young people ask me, they say, you know, what, what were some of the formative experiences in your life? What changed your career? That departure from my computer journalism path Switching to and going to Bangladesh was just an enormous eye-opening experience for me. Uh, you know, for one thing, uh, you know, within six days after landing in, in Dhaka, I was actually sitting on bamboo mats in floors in villages in Bangladesh with a translator listening to women tell the stories of their lives and, you know, being fed massive quantities of, of rice and chicken and all sorts of sweets uh, as I listened to these stories, you know, for hours and hours and hours. And uh, for me, you know, w what, I, what I saw was that I bet it changed my sense of where, you know, of who's competent in the world, what people can do. And I saw at the smallest level, at the poorest person in a village in Bangladesh is very competent and is really capable of doing tremendous things but has been living in an environment that's very constrained. So I thought about that for about a year as I was doing this research. I was in Bangladesh over the course of two years for one year and uh, ended up thinking about what this would mean you know, as a book, not just a story of, the, of one institution, 
but what did it say about how the world changes or how development occurs? And I found two things. One was development definitely occurs by unleashing the capacity of all of these people. That's the key thing. The next thing is institutions like the Grameen Bank are built by entrepreneurs. No matter what their goal is, their goal might be to protect street children, to uh, provide opportunities for disabled people, to uh, improve, uh, safeguard the environment, or to develop a new system to deliver electricity. All real examples that I found. But the bottom line is, if there's an institution and if, if it has a high touch and is a learning organization and has a degree of trust in it and a culture of excellence, there was an entrepreneur who started it. It was not started by a development organization. It was not created by the World Bank or the UNDP or anything like that. And this was a huge surprise to me because I always assumed that if we want to change the world, we need to petition the government, we need to fight, lobby Congress and so forth, and the government will actually solve the problems. I found that Muhammad Yunus, the guy who started the Grameen Bank, had done all the things that classic entrepreneurs do classically. They, you know, friends and family networks initially. Initially, his, the bank was started by his graduate students when he was teaching economics at Chittagong University. He pulled these students in to work on these projects after hours. Um, then he got some initial funding. And because he was working in a nonprofit world, he got the funding from the Ford Foundation. Uh, and then he tried something. He tried to sell a product, initially a, some loans to villagers to see what would happen. And he found out that almost all of his assumptions were completely wrong. This didn't work. You couldn't organize villagers in this fashion. This was far too cumbersome. You would never be able to scale. And through this sort of iterative process of constantly learning, failing, failing forward, absorbing that, that new information, and working outward, over years, he developed, built up this, this uh, articulated structure capable of working in more than 50,000 villages now in Bangladesh, which has 12,000 employees and has lent $5 billion and doesn't really use any legal mechanisms at all to guarantee, to guarantee its loans. So when I came back to New York from, from Bangladesh and I thought about all this, I remember thinking, well, you know, my editor was pressing me. He said, you wrote a book. You have to have a conclusion now. I said, oh, okay, I have to say something smart. And what, what I thought was, this is the mechanism. This is the lesson of the Grameen Bank. We need to find ways to replicate this process, not to try to replicate microcredit or the Grameen Bank itself, but try to understand the process that leads to greatness, great innovation in the world. And I realized that that process was entrepreneurs being able to uh, seize opportunities and grow with them and pull in lots of other great people into those teams so that you have this, these organizations that come up. And when I thought about that, I realized that the business sector has done this very, very well for at least, you know, I guess about 120 years it's been doing that quite well. You know, not as well before that, but certainly very, very well now. Uh, it has the financing mechanisms. It certainly excites entrepreneurs with their opportunities. Uh, it's got the business schools where people can learn. They don't have to reinvent the wheel. They can learn from past organizations what they've done. And the social arena didn't have any of those things. The social arena had a kind of command and control approach where ideas or policies were, de were designed at a very high level based on uh, 
the thoughts of smart people, and then they were implemented. And sometimes they were implemented in a kind of cookie-cutter approach. And that process led to a lot of disappointments, and to what I think is a probably strong belief in this country that government doesn't work very well, which is also a pretty strong belief globally. Uh, in fact, in every country that's had free elections since 1980, voter turnout has, has, has declined. Basically, people don't really think that the governments are working that well. But I don't think it's that government itself can work, can work well or won't work well. I think it's probably uh, a function of the fact that we had governments playing roles that they never should have played. Gov governments have certain core competencies and abilities, but the entrepreneur in the social arena can really do some, some tremendous things. So I decided to go write another book and really look at the role of a social entrepreneur in the world. And really it was just to see what, what are people building out there? What's going on? You know, I, we know that since you know, the mid-80s or the early 80s, there's been this kind of withdrawal of authoritarianism in the world. We saw it with apartheid, South Africa. We saw it with what happened with the Latin American dictatorships. We saw it with Portugal and Spain, if you go back to the late 70s. And then gradually we saw it in other countries, spreading around the world, the commun former communist regimes, the former Soviet Union, this removal of state power telling people what, what they can do and what they'll probably go to jail for if they try to, to mess with the status quo. So that was a very big force. Another very big force was that women and what women can do all around the world over the last 30 years has changed very dramatically. The degrees of freedom for women in India in 2005 and India in 1975 are very, very different, even at the village level. So if you look at those forces and then you add to that global communications, a trillion dollars, at least a trillion dollars passing through you know, mark, uh, money, uh, finance mechanisms around the world, and then urgency, real felt need about the environment, a sense that uh, we're not managing many important risks very well, it seemed to me that it would create something pretty powerful. Those were very strong historical forces that would lead to changes in the world that are quite new. And what I found was that, yes, there's lots and lots of social entrepreneurs. They're in every country, they're in every community, and you know, they're, they're uh, very, very destabilizing forces in the world today, and they're completely hidden because we don't have a communication system that tells us about them. So I'll give you just a couple of examples that I found that I wrote about in my book. Uh, one of them is uh, a woman named, uh, social entrepreneur, a woman named Jeru Bilamoria, who uh, grew up in India. She grew up in Bombay and uh, decided to study nonprofit management in the United States. So she, uh, she enrolled at the New School for Social Research, uh, worked with homeless people when she was in New York. It's an interesting combination. Her father was an accountant and her mother was a social worker. So she had this interest in business. She grew up with business. There were business people in her house all the time. And she always had her mother talking about what was going on in these public schools in Bombay. And so she sort of became a bridge between, the, between both of them. Uh, after working with the Coalition for the Homeless in New York, she went back to Bombay and said, I'd like to work with street children. She was teaching at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Bombay, which is a very uh, well-known social science school. She had a lot of graduate students you know, who were helping her, and so like Muhammad Yunus, she decided that she would try to involve her graduate students in an innovative project working with the street kids. 
And she thought, you know, the street kids, you know, there, there are many, there, there, there are street kids for many different reasons in Bombay. Some of them actually volunte voluntarily went to live in the city to support their families. And so they're actually, they're pretty, they're, you know, they're, they feel good about themselves. They sell Marlboro cigarettes and Wrigley Spearmint gum on the streets in Bombay. They sleep in tea stalls or in train stations, or if someone is kind to them, you know, maybe they'll sleep inside uh, someone's shop at night. Or sometimes they, sheep, they sleep in the shelters, Bombay's night shelters. And they go home every couple of months to bring back the remittances to their families in the villages. And they're, they're considered to be doing something very honorable. Then there are the runaways, people who left families because their parents were alcoholics. The father was an alcoholic usually, and there was a lot of violence in the family. And you know, then there were just runaways who wanted an adventure in Bombay and then could never find their way back home and had been living in Bombay for three years because they couldn't figure out how to get back to the village. They didn't know where it was. So Jeru heard all these stories and she thought, we need systems, basic protective systems for these kids, you know, because hanging out with them, she would hear, you know, about how, oh, this policeman, you know, he saw me just walking down the street, he just beat me up. He just hit me over the head with his baton. Or, or my friend got tuberculosis, I took him to the hospital, the hospital wouldn't admit him because his, they said his clothes were too dirty. And after hearing these stories, she said, what sort of system would, would work well to protect the street kids? And she went back to her experience in New York City. She said, we need a hotline. New York had hotlines for homeless people. Let's do a hotline. So she went to the Ministry of Telecommunications in Bombay and uh, asked them if she could get a toll-free number. Well, this is really, you know, this, it, it's, it's at the point that you take your first action like this is really where you find the split very often between entrepreneurs, you know, and people who want to solve social problems but are more idealistic about them. Because as soon as she got to the ministry and said, we want a hotline, they said, you can't have a hotline. We don't do that. We don't give hotlines away. And, you know, most people would probably say, oh, okay, well, I tried. But she spent three years probably sending a thousand letters, faxes, and emails going around to her community, calling up friends of her family, her father's friends, people who were in pretty high-level places, saying to them, I have this idea, would you help me with it? Would you join my board of advisors? Or would you contribute some money to it? And through this process, or would you write a letter to the ministry on my behalf so we could get a hotline? And through this process, the time-worn process of basically mobilizing power, she eventually put enough pressure on a couple of people that she got a hotline. At the same time, she wanted to get some money, so she applied for a grant, and she was able to raise $6,000. She went out to 100 organizations in Bombay and said, I'd love to form a network uh, called Childline and have all these organizations work together to, to help the kids. And out of those 100 organizations, 85 of them said no. So not, we're not interested in joining this network. And I remember when I interviewed Jeru, I, I, I said to her, I said, you must have been very, very discouraged when that happened. And she said, oh, no, 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 I thought, I thought, the 15 who said yes must be really serious. And, and it stuck with me. I mean, that interview was, was many years ago, and I still remember that she had this ability to sort of flip failure and turn it into success. And it was just, it was a mental flip of a, of a chip in her brain where she, she chose to see it that way. 
And that's happened probably a thousand times throughout her life because she chose to see the ministry saying no the same way. And in fact, that's really her, her greatest great advantage because she's not a genius, very nice person, very smart, but you know, there's lots of people in the world who are smarter. There's probably lots of people in the world who are just as persistent. But that ability to digest failure in that particular way is, I think, a particular gift that she has that has enabled her to do things that a lot of people find amazing. So, got those 15 organizations, she had the phone lines, she had some money, and then her basic challenge was, how do I make the system work? Who's gonna field the calls? Who's gonna rescue the kids? And she realized at that point that she couldn't do anything like what was happening in New York, because in New York you had, you had people on, on staff, you had paramedics, you had all that stuff. She said, the only option I have is to train the street youth themselves and to presume they're competent, which is what Muhammad Yunus did with the Grameen Bank, presume they're competent, and train them in how to answer a phone call and what to do under, in a number of situations. And she found that the street youth were very well, highly motivated to do this work. For one thing, they, they really cared about their friends. Another thing was, nobody ever believed in them, and when somebody believes in you for the first time, you, ten you tend to be very, very appreciative. So they really didn't want to ruin that trust. So with this very, very low-level, sort of no, no bricks and mortar approach, uh, Childline was launched in 1996, and in its first year it fielded 6,600 calls, and it rescued uh, 858 children from, uh, from pretty serious problems. Uh, so one of, the, one of the cases that was told to me was told to me by the street youth themselves. Uh, a man, probably a businessman, was walking through a train station and he saw a little girl who was two years old, naked in the station, who had been abandoned. Nobody was taking care of her. She had burns on her chest and on her legs from hot water being poured on her. And as he was passing through the station, he saw this. He heard about Childline. There, was this, there were these posters everywhere in the train station saying, call Childline, 1098. And so he called that number very quickly and, and got one of the street youth and said, there's this little girl, this is where she's located, I can't stay, I'm late, and then he hung up. And so the street youth ran to the train station looking for the girl, they couldn't find her, it took, her, it took them a number of hours because in the meantime, one of the beggars in the station had taken her to the corner of the station to say she was his daughter, to use her as a sort of a prop for begging. And so they eventually discovered this. They got the policeman in the station to go, ask the man, you know, to, to, they talked to him, but the policeman sided with the beggar, the, who's an adult, against the street youth. And this whole process was a mess. It took about seven hours, but they eventually got this girl released. Uh, and then through the Childline Network, which includes uh, shelters, uh, people who work in hospitals, programs that uh, try to manage adoption and things like that. They were able to get her in, uh, into the hospital first and then into a short-term hospital, hospital, hospice, and then adopted. And so what's, what's interesting is that she's now uh, adopted by a middle-class family. She's now on a middle-class global trajectory, you know, which is fairly universal trajectory, which means she could end up at Duke, you know? And this man who had his cell, his cell phone, who dialed this you know, four-digit number and left, he was like God. He changed her life, you know, because she, God knows where, where she would have ended up if she had stayed with the beggar in the, in the station. 
So in a sense, what, what this system was able to do was to take a city and to turn it into a team for that situation in that moment of time. And that's really the genius of this, this particular idea. It converged at a point in India's history when phones were beginning to crop up everywhere, when there was an enormous problem of street children proliferating because of the pressures in villages, and when the government and the public services were beginning to be receptive to working with these kinds of wildflower organizations. And what has happened over the last nine years is that Childline has grown and grown and grown. Today it works in, uh, I'm, I'm, always, I'm as out of date with Childline as I am with the Grameen Bank. At last count it was 65 cities and had fielded about 7 million calls with about 100,000 of those being serious rescues and a lot of them being calls for information, for repatriation and a lot of them being kids just calling because they're lonely and they want to chat with somebody. So, so, Jeru, so and this system is, has been, per, has been uh, not purchased, but has been adopted by the Indian government as India's national child protection system. It's now a project of the Ministry of Justice and Social Empowerment. It's one of the ways that India uh, fulfills its obligations under the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which it signed and ratified in 1992, but really had never put much force into putting into effect. And so now Jeru has stepped down from Childline. She moved to Amsterdam to start Child Helpline International. And she's, over the past four years, gotten this process sparked in uh, about a dozen other countries. So there's all these international child lines that are sprouting up. And now they actually have an international sort of consortium of child lines where they're, they're trying to, to make sure that standards are consistent in the treatment of children and that these systems definitely connect the most vulnerable people in society to the power systems to the governance. Uh, it's very, th this, is, this is a story that I tell over and over and over again, and it's interesting. I mean, I sometimes, you know, one of the, I learned this from Muhammad Yunus and from many social entrepreneurs, you have to get over the inhibition of repeating yourself if you want to be effective, because, you know, you just, ha you just have to say the same things over and over again. But I always find something new in it. And the thing, you know, one of the things that I realize now is that you know, I, I often tell this story from Jeru's point of view. She's sort of the superhero of the story. But I leave out these very other important details. And these have bear direct relevance on especially business students. Because there were two crucial uh, needs that Childline had in its history. One of them was it needed to figure out how to do branding. How do you become a national program with a consistent marketing strategy, with a consistent brand, she didn't know. I mean, you know, she was a social worker. But she started thinking, and she, and she realized, you know, there's all these brands in the business sector. They know how to do branding. They must have all this experience with branding. So she went to Ogilvy and Mather, and she got a bunch of their, you know, young MBAs out, you know, one year into the working world and said, you know, and, and made her uh, talk to some of the senior managers and said, would you help us with this branding challenge? And at first, you know, the company was, we'll help you a little, but we can't give you too much time. But then as the employees started getting involved in it and thinking, well, this is an interesting challenge. You know, there's 18 different regional languages in India. Should you translate Childline phonetically or linguistically? Hmm. They did a marketing survey. They tried to figure out what did the street kids respond to? What works better? It turned out that translating it phonetically worked better than linguistically. So it's Childline translated as that word in the 18 different languages. 
But these kinds of challenges came up over and over again, and the, the uh, consultants started, you know, they'd come into work and they were really excited and very motivated to work on these challenges. And their, their bosses started to see that this was actually an interesting perk. They'd never thought of it as a perk. But if you're doing some good work for us, we'll let you work on childline. <laughs> very interesting. The other thing that childline needed, now, now think about that, that's a whole skill set that's been, in a sense, mastered you know, we're still developing branding and marketing strategies in the business sector, but, but the social entrepreneurs are about 100 years behind you guys when it comes to knowing that stuff. And there's enormous need there. Uh, the other skill set was, uh, at a certain point, Childline was getting all these phone calls over and over again, and they realized they weren't capturing the data. You know, but they, you know, they had anecdotal information, like they would hear, oh boy, we're getting a lot of calls for tuberculosis you know, near Dadar train station. You know, maybe we should alert the authorities that that's a, that's a, a hot spot. So they said, what we really, what we really need is a, is a call tracking system. And one day, a Jeru was flying back to Bombay, and she happened to meet uh, an executive from uh, the Tata Consultancy Group, which is one of the largest consulting, business cons uh, management consulting firms, as well as computer consulting firms in India. And sort of after about, you know, 12, you know, it's a long flight to India. After about 12 hours of sort of hammering away at him, he eventually relented and he said, okay, I'll give you, you know, one programmer. Well, the same thing happened as happened with Ogilvy and Mather. They got so into it that they eventually probably provided them with millions of dollars, the equivalent of millions of dollars of consulting services because their programmers loved it so much. And so they created this system called ChildNet, which is a computerized tracking, call tracking system and it, ha it also had a lot of interesting challenges. For example, the street kids who took the calls often don't read very well. So the system had to work with pictures, or in some cases, voice commands. It couldn't all be text-driven, right? And they had to also be able to enter information. You know, like in a restaurant, you know, you click on the, the omelet picture instead of the word that says omelet. But this was new to them. These were all new challenges. And then they had to figure out, you know, had to write the software to figure out what's relevant to look for. And through this system, they started getting information that the authorities that are involved in child protection never knew about. They never knew, for example, that children are often abducted in Varanasi because uh, that's the, the seat of the, the sari industry in India. And children have nimble fingers, which is very, very important for that kind of weaving. So they get abducted in train stations and sort of forced into this kind of slave labor situation. Uh, in Goa, where, where there's a lot of uh, foreign tourists, there's a whole uh, industry of sexual abuse of children. And that's a big problem there. Uh, in certain other cities, in Tamil Nadu, it's the fireworks industry. Lots of children get injured in that industry. And in Delhi, it was, middle class fa it was, it was servants in middle-class families who were often abused you know, by, the, by the people that they worked for. And so these were all problems that just came to light through this ChildNet call tracking system and if you think about it, now that Childline is a project of the Ministry of Social Justice and Empowerment, a national program, you have calls from street kids coming into a system analyzed by the highest, you know, by fantastic so software programs, and the output is being used to inform the government's policies. And that whole network, that whole sort of end-to-end -end solution has been built up in, uh, you know, pretty much the last seven or eight years. So it's still very recent.
But that's, that's uh, you know, for the people who have worked on Childline, I interviewed a lot of them, you know, I know that, you know, 30 years from now, whatever jobs they have over the next 30 years, they'll, they'll be telling their grandkids, you know, just the way World War II veterans talk about D-Day, they will be talking about the time that they worked on Childline. Because many of them feel that they had a real uh, contribution to India's history. And very, very excited about it. Over the course of the last you know, five years, as I was re researching this book about social entrepreneurs, I went to uh, eight different countries and I interviewed more than 100 people. And I heard many, many stories like this. And I couldn't believe it because I thought, you know, if you can imagine this story, I can talk about you know, Fabio Rosa in Brazil who has developed a system to bring electricity, low-cost electricity, to more than a million people in Brazil. You know, I can talk about a woman in Hungary, Erzabeth Sikaris, who developed a whole new system for the, for the uh, li humane living and working arrangements for disabled people that has spread across Hungary, and so forth. Now, if you, if you hear these stories and you can sort of step back from them and can extrapolate and ima imagine, you know, a hundred of them, imagine 5,000 of them or 10,000, you begin to see that there's this global landscape out there that's very different from the one that, popula pop that populates our imagination. And you know, if you think about it, I mean, we hear about the terrorists, we hear about the, the, po the politicians, we hear about the business people, we hear about their successes, we know about the athletes, the musicians, and all that, but there's this whole group of people, of actors out there in society who are building all of this, this whole landscape of new institutions and we don't know about them. Now, all of these institutions have the same needs that Childline had. They need smart people who know how to you know, handle these kinds of tasks. You know, they desperately need your brains more than you know, Procter & Gamble does. I hope they're, they're not a big funder of the university. <laughs> so. And in the United States, too, you know, I see business students around the country, and I, you know, I'm I always I like to remember stories like the Wharton business students who, who started TerraPass. Very, very cool idea. Most of you know about pollution trading, carbon credits. You know about carbon credits? Okay, well, well if you go to the TerraPass website, you can find out exactly how many carbon credits you have to buy to offset your brother's Ford Explorer. Okay? And you can buy him for Christmas a $92 TerraPass and tell him, for one year, he'll be a zero-footprint guy, you know, vis-a-vis -vis his car. It's a great idea. And what they do is they take that amount of money and they show you how the kinds of investments in, you know, non-renewable, in, in renewable energy or in buying carbon credits and then retiring those credits leads to an equivalent reduction in greenhouse gas pollution that you get from the average Ford Explorer driven at the average, which is about 12,000 miles a year according to their statistics. Very interesting idea, very cool idea. Uh, I recently, I spoke at a design school, the Parsons School of Design, and all of the students were designing things that were wonderful. I mean, and, and one of the teachers came up to me and he said, this, I have to tell you, this is very new. We've been, you know, we've had our, our, our class projects every year for the past five or six years, and historically, it's always been the same thing. It's home, home design items, you know, a, a nice, a better coffee maker or something like that. This year, it was, a better wheelchair, fashionable wheelchair. Uh, it was clothing for women who have had mastectomies that looked good. It was uh, lightweight walkers for, for older people made of uh, lightweight alloys and so forth. One, one 
uh, young man had created a kit to teach woodworking to young men in Uganda. And I didn't meet him, but I presume that was something that he learned was a need. And this, <laughs> this whole kit was designed about it. Another one was very moving to me because of a personal situation is uh, a game, a, a, life, a game that's called Life Review, life review Therapy. But it, but it was, the, the whole purpose of the game was for people who have memory problems or Alzheimer's, through the game you review your life. And, and you play that with your family members, and it's designed to stimulate memory, and it's based on the research that's available about the kinds of things that can be done. I mean, wonderful ideas. And this is just happening across the country. I mean, Swarthmore students who founded the Genocide Intervention Fund, these undergrads who've already raised a half a million dollars for the African Peace Creeping Union, and have a really interesting marketing strategy whereby they're using private dollars to fund what is essentially a government peacekeeping approach. Now think about that. Have you ever given money to the US government and said, go do this voluntarily? That's, but what they're doing is they're essentially creating a, they're creating a new pattern in how we should think about solving these collective problems. And they've actually had a lot of sway uh, on, on, on uh, Capitol Hill and so forth. And these guys are, you know, they're right out of college. I mean, it's very, very impressive. So looking back, at, if we think about this landscape and what's happening in the world, and remember the things that I talked about before, the, you know, these sort of the crumbling traditions, the, the new change in the power of individuals, which is very new. I mean, think about it. People like Osama bin Laden, you know, or Bono, or Jeffrey Sachs, who have tremendous influence as individuals going around the world. You know, there was a chef in England recently who was a famous celebrity chef who got the British, who, who got the, uh, the uh, British government to change the, its funding policies for school lunches. And actually got the, you know, through a campaign that he started, got the, uh, the government to uh, allocate hundreds of millions of dollars to improve the quality of lunches in England. You know, and uh, if you think about that, how, the question that arises is how do you prepare yourself 10 years from now or 20 years from now <clears throat> or, or when you graduate to, to be effective to, in, in this world? How do you familiarize yourself with it so that you can really seize the opportunities and do things that are exciting? And I think uh, these are the major, this is the major question I would ask myself today if I were graduating from college. Because when I graduated 20 years ago from McGill in 1985, I never even heard of any of this stuff. I had four ideas in my head about what I wanted to do as a job. I was going to either become a computer programmer because everybody knew that was the year that Windows was launched. Everybody knew that it was a big thing. I was going to uh, start my own business, although I didn't know what it was, or doctor lawyer because my parents always talked about doctor lawyer. So now there's this whole landscape of things that you can do where you can sort of have these different experiences, work across sectors, apply your skills in non-traditional ways, and actually it's a viable career too. It's not something that, you know, you, you don't have to, you may not, you know, make the, the kind of salaries you would make on Wall Street, but it's certainly a very viable career. It's not something that, that is shameful. And so the things that I, you know, that, that seem to me is there's, on one side there's how do you prepare yourself, on the other side is how do you learn to identify what the needs are out there. And uh, the first thing is I would, I would say, let's look at the needs, kinds of problems. First thing I would, I would say if I wanted to work for an organization in the citizen sector, what I call the citizen sector, a term that, I, I, uh, that Bill Drayton coined, 
who's the founder of Ashoka, uh, the organization that Greg mentioned that I feature in my second book, which, which looks for social entrepreneurs around the world to sort of invest in them. Um, the, the, uh, the first thing I would look for are organizations that ask big questions, that really understand and are looking at the global patterns and trying to figure out, you know, anticipate the curve. The next thing is systems to aggregate the wisdom that's currently being promoted. When you have thousands of organizations doing new things, some of them very innovative and effective, you need an, an aggregation mechanism that pulls these ideas together so that you can have much quicker spread of these ideas. Currently, it's very, it's very ad hoc, it's very slow. Uh, we need whole new financial mechanisms to bring these ideas to scale. The, the foundation grant is not doing it. So there's new, new mechanisms that have to come up uh, that will really allow this potential to really uh, uh, fulfill itself. And finally, we need people who themselves are cross-sector actors, people who, who can actually make, you know, connect the dots from the business sector to the social arena to the government. Because in fact, the financial arrangements are probably not going to come from just the foundations. They'll come from a combination of individuals, governments reallocating money in different ways, and businesses realizing that they can't offload risk forever. And so they actually have to buy the solutions. Because probably in the future, governments won't be allowed to offload risk as much as they're allowed to do it now. And when that happens, they'll have to purchase solutions. And the people who will have the solutions are probably the social entrepreneurs. So that itself is a big opportunity. Uh, so from the point of view of you know, what, what works for, uh, for individuals, the first thing I would say if I were, again, this is me, um, is I would say to keep your options open because I think the future is very uncertain and I think things are changing very much and opportunities will come up surprisingly. And to the degree that you can give yourself kind of like a low cost structure, a low cost structure of life, so, so that you can uh, drop something if you don't like it and move to another opportunity, you'll be much better positioned than other people who have, who have uh, locked themselves into pathways. And you know, personally, what that means for me is still living in a one-bedroom apartment in New York City, although we have a two-year-old. <laughs> and 80% of the apartment is covered with uh, little, little animals. <laughs> little teeny-weeny animals. So, but, you know, I mean, my wife and I, we keep on talking about moving to a two-bedroom apartment and, you know, the whole work. And you know what real estate prices are in New York. And I realize as soon as I do that, I, ha I am then a prisoner of what the market wants. I, I'm, I, I am, my ability to be a thought leader is somewhat constrained. You know, I'm so happy you said that about me. I can't remember. It's like... Because I have to then start looking for things that not only do I think are important, but things that I think I can get a good advance for or will sell in a magazine and so forth. So my creativity, you know, my self-generating creativity is then con is constrained. And so I'm essentially, tra I, would be tr I would be trading square footage for freedom. Okay. And at some point in my life, I probably will want the square footage enough to make some of that trade. But right now, for as long as I can bear it, I'm not going to do that. The other really great thing to do is to give yourself multiple exposures across sectors and across cultures and all that because I believe that in the future the thing that's going to be valued most is going to be agility. People who are agile thinkers, who are versatile. Uh, 
And what feeds agility is the ability to be, to be very quick at spotting patterns and to see opportunities. And what feeds that are scientists you know, who look at the brain and say the brain is at its best when it's matching patterns. That's what makes the brain so much more powerful than a computer. And you see that if you look at any child who speaks language and understands language at the age of two better than any programmed computer with voice recognition software. The reason why is because the brain, you know, we're just, we're just wired to be able to say this is like that, even though it's not that much like that, it's mostly like that. We can spot faces, we can, we can identify, you know, all sorts of patterns very quickly. But what feeds it is you have to have lots of examples. Pattern, the ability to spot patterns is contingent on the number of examples that you've seen that, you, that, that are basically the inputs into the system. You know, so if my son Elijah, for example, can spot a dog very well, he knows every, and the dog can be big, it can be tall, it can be blue, it can be red, he, always, he knows the essence of dog because he's seen a, th a million dogs at this point. And he, you know, if, if he sees a three-legged dog walking down the street, he still knows it's a dog. He gets it. And we have to be able to identify innovation in the same way, we, you know, to, to look at something and say, this person is doing something that I've seen before. I've seen this pattern, this particular creative use of resources that increases our leverage by five. And so those exposures are really the, the, the thing that allow you to be a pattern spotter, which allow you to be uh, an innovator. And finally, um, you know, it's worth it to think about risk in a, in a, in a different way. And what, what I mean is, is the conventional way of thinking about risk is to, is to think about financial risk, the risk that I won't be able to feed my, my family, I won't have enough money. And that's, that's a very, very big risk. The other risk, which is now I think I see more and more young people talking about today, is the, the risk of doing something that just doesn't really turn them on. And for me, I felt that personally, and I, can, I, did, I was a computer programmer for five years. And when I look back on it now, I mean, I still wonder, why did I make that choice? You know, I didn't, I liked it. It was, it was a fun job. I mean, it was cool. But I realized it was a marketable competency that I had and that, that everybody around me said, oh boy, there's a, computers are really taking off now. You're so well positioned. And in fact, because I had this marketable competency, because I was good in math and I, I, I picked up these computer languages quickly, it made it actually more difficult for me to actually be quiet with myself and to actually look and find out what it was that I really wanted to do. It took me many more years, you know, to, to discover that because, and, and in some sense, your, market, your marketability, your, your sheer competency, the fact that you have these degrees that are so valuable in the world are actually going to mitigate whether, you know, how much you can know yourself in some sense. You almost have to fight your attractiveness to, to know your deep strengths and, and, and interests. And, um, you know, just, I, I just thought of a story, by the way, getting back to the last point is when I was talking about having cross-sectoral experience, cross experiences, I, I remember uh, reading the speech by, that Stephen Jobs gave at Stanford University that was circulated on the, on the internet. It was the commencement address. Did anybody read that speech? So you'll remember that one of the things he said that was crucial in his life was that he took a calligraphy course he audited a calligraphy course when he was an undergraduate just because he was interested in it. And later on, it turned out that the great innovations with the Macintosh were really based on the look of the fonts and the design elements that made the Mac so much 
more attractive to so many more people than the IBM model. And so that's, that's the kind of creativity that, that, um, that you get when you cross disciplines, the ability to, to really genuinely make new things. And um, so the final thing I would like to say is, <clears throat> if any of you want to uh, be a social entrepreneur in the future or work with social entrepreneurs, well, how many do? What I would say is, <clears throat> start thinking now, you know, and think big. Who are the people that it would be good for you to meet? Because it's all going to happen. You know, a lot of these things really happen through relationships. And uh, if you can imagine the people you, would, you need to meet over the next three years, and, and imagine people that would be hard to meet, whose time is very limited, it's worth it to start thinking about how you can get closer to those people, how you can actually get those relationships to happen. Because it's what I've found through looking at all these social entrepreneurs around the world, everything that they've really built has been very contingent on having lots of relationships that allowed them to build those things and, and getting to know people. And they didn't leave these relationships to chance. It wasn't a haphazard process. It was a very conscious process of pulling people into their vortex uh, because they were like-minded or they were particularly important in understanding how this group of actors work, the government works, the tech sector works, or whatever. And so this is something that you can actually do very consciously. And I'll give you one example that I heard from a, a young woman who started an organization that's kind of like a Stanley Kaplan course for low-income kids. And you all know the Stanley Kaplan course, which helps you increase your SATs, right? Anybody know that? Okay. So she said, why, should, why shouldn't low-income kids also be able to increase their SATs by 200 points? So she started an organization to do this, and then she got it into her head that she wanted Stanley Kaplan to be on the board. And she called him many times, and she could never get through to him. So one day she got this crazy idea that she was going to write a three-page I mean, three play about what it would be like if she met Stanley Kaplan in an elevator. And you, know, you, could, you can just imagine the, the text. You know, it's like, doors closed. Oh my god, you're Stanley Kaplan. I've been calling you. I really, really want to talk with you. And, you know, who are you? So she sent this, uh, this three-page document to him. And she got a call, you know, a day later. Who, who are you? you know? and, uh, and she got a meeting with him, and now he's on her board. And so, so, so I thought, that's very creative. That's, that's the kind of thing that, you know, you got to do those things in life. If you don't do them, you just think, why didn't I do that? I mean, what, did you have, what do you have to lose? And those kinds of meetings that allow you to build things are just, uh, they're just, uh, they're there, they're out there for the having. And um, the last point, the very last point I'd like to make, I keep on saying the last point and then I remember another one, <laughs> is uh, finally uh, the issue of capacity. What I've found over and over again is that capacity is not fixed. I've found this in myself and I also found this with people I've written about. In fact, when you start something, anything you imagine doing, you don't actually have to have the belief, you don't have to have the knowledge, you don't have to have the confidence, you don't have to have the skills to finish it when you begin it. You just really need to have enough to begin it. Uh, because actually as you take those steps, a lot comes along the way. And what freezes many people is the idea that I can't do it because they're looking at the end point rather than just at the beginning point. The beginning point requires a lot less. And I've seen over and over and over in this, this, this notion of capacity growing with action and engagement. 
And all of this is built upon belief, the belief that it's actually possible to build these things and actually improve the world and have a, a meaningful, exciting life where you align your, your passions, your talents, and your interests. And all of that is contingent on hearing stories, I think, which is why I think I like to think of myself as a storyteller, because we need to see these examples, hear these stories about Grameen Bank, Childline, and all these organizations. And uh, so I'm, I would just like to thank you for, uh, for listening to these stories, and I hope you enjoyed them. Thank you. Do we have some time for questions? Shoot. Do you have any thoughts on how you could teach bean counters to recognize innovation? How to teach bean counters? Yes. You've got people who have the money, but whatever it is, and you have a person with an innovative idea. Often the people who have the money are not the most creative people. <laughs> so there's a disconnect in getting the money to the innovation. What, you, you, what you're uh, really describing is, is <clears throat> the problem with the market, the marketplace. Uh, in the business sector, people can very easily apply their funds where they think they'll get the greatest return on those funds, or the least risk, or whatever, however they're thinking about it. Uh, in, the, in the sector of social change, it's, it's not easy to, to necessarily know where you have the greatest impact. And I think what you're, what you're uh, describing is the problem. In fact, it's the focus on numbers or knowledge through numbers that really we've gotten from business. That's one of the big problems we have now in the social arena. People, think something is, people only think something is true if they have a number. You know, 90% you know, of statistics are made up. I just made that up. So, but if they have a number with it, it gives you a feeling like, oh my god, I can, I can hang on that. And in fact, in the social arena, what we're going to have to do is really develop systems where people can make you know, very informed, disciplined, system, disciplined decisions that involve judgment, weighing one good against another. In this, should we focus on early childhood enrichment, early, you know, early development enrichment, or should we focus on college access. And if we can focus on both of them, how do we allocate the resources from those two? This is a hard, this is a hard question. And it actually will take probably a generation of people figuring out ways of looking at things, of balancing or prioritizing, diff prioritizing different goods. Uh, but I think it is possible to make pretty good decisions uh, where subjectivity is involved. That's why we have juries. You know, we actually do believe that people can make very good decisions. Our legal system is based on the idea of making, deci making decisions based on rules of evidence and so forth, and ju but judgment. We don't have any spreadsheets in, in, in this courtroom to help people. And I think if we learned from where people apply disciplined judgment to make decisions, then we would actually have a much, much better allocation of money in the social arena. Question to follow up, uh, instead of having folks that may have uh, resources but no uh, creativity or intelligence, would you uh, consider somebody <laughs> like uh, 
Bill Gates uh, through the Gates Foundation or Ted Turner with his work with the UN, would you put throw them in? Are they uh, social entrepreneurs or did they just find Jesus? Well, I usually don't think of the people on the funding end as social entrepreneurs unless they really have been innovators in the way they fund. I think Gates' foundation is very entrepreneurial because it's recreated the you know, funding mechanisms and it's, it's, it's really gotten everybody in the field to think differently about how we scale solutions. So there, there really is something very innovative in what they're doing. Um, I, when, I, when I use the word social entrepreneur to describe someone, I'm really thinking along the lines of are they finding a way to, uh, to leverage resources better, to get more bang for the buck, to leverage resources that they don't control? Are they constantly looking to increase their impact and so forth? And is there an e a very strong ethical dimension to the work that they're doing? So uh, I don't really know Ted Turner's work that well. Uh, I, think, I don't actually think, by the way, that Bill Gates has found Jesus. I think that the same, you know, look at what he did with software. You know, he said, wow, this is a better business than hardware. You know why? Because you just have to get it once, and then you can print it a billion times, right? And just send it. It's the same thing with vaccines, right? You, there's a lot of upfront development costs, but once you have that, that thing, the impact is incredible. And he's focused in some ways with his philanthropy on the same... So I think that there's something that really appealed to him, and he saw the power of it in the same way that he saw the power of DOS, you know, 20 years ago. That's, that's really the, one of the key, key questions. I mean, I'm so glad you said that, because right now, you know, that relationship doesn't exist very well. There's, there's, there's no systematic way that a government takes over a project. Usually when governments take over things that were developed in the nonprofit world and were very effective, they become bureaucratic afterwards. And that's just a problem, and I think that what we need is we need much more creative experimentation in forming that bridge, that relationship. And it does require people who have experience in both sectors so that they can understand the language of government. They can understand government has its own set of needs. You know, accountability, you know, short-term results are very, very important. Social entrepreneurs have a set of needs. Open space for experimentation, long-term, in many cases, long-term results are the, are the key things ability to fail, to try things without knowing whether they're going to work, and so forth. These are things that, don't, that the government is, is allergic to, you know, because of, because of all of the responses, all of the rules that, that have been put in place because of past experiences in government of people betraying the public trust work against governments being able to nurture and sustain innovations. So I think that there's probably new, new institutional arrangements that have to be created that can in some way combine the agility with the, with the legitimacy and bring them together. And the people who will build those will be people who have had experiences in both places 
and have the relationships from fairly senior people to allow them to do things that are somewhat new, you know? From your side of social entrepreneurs, how much is their social entrepreneurship a newborn talent versus a set of acquired competencies over time? I think it's both. You know, I, it, there's definitely people who are born entrepreneurs and, you know, they have a, a gift for it. You, you cannot deny that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really clear. And, but if you look at the business sector in the United States, you know, there's millions of people who start businesses. Many, many people with many different levels of entrepreneurial ability. Some have a little, some have a lot, and so forth. A small percentage of those businesses go public. A lot of them do really well at a moderate level. A lot, most of them stay pretty small. And I think what happens with people is when they start things, they tend to develop their, uh, you know, they tend to find what, the, the way that they like to work, how much, how, the, whether they have the temperament of do I want to drive this train full speed ahead while I'm laying the track, you know, which is a, definitely an entrepreneurial temperament, okay? That's a growth orientation. It's an orientation to uncertainty that some people, you know, don't have. And I think those temperamental qualities we tend to come in the world with us tend to be, if not in, you know, they're formed fairly young. Uh, but the thing that I, that I find most interesting about social entrepreneurship is that it's not just about the entrepreneur. It's like saying the business sector is just about the entrepreneur. It's not. I mean, you know, it's all about this whole group of people who together develop a new kind of institution that pulls together many, many different kinds of talents and understandings to create something that's greater than the sum of the parts. And I think I see the role of the entrepreneur as being kind of like chicken stock in soup. You know, they, they have to hold, they hold a lot of ingredients together, but it's the ingredients, it's all of those other things that really make it work. But if you don't have stock, you don't have soup. I wonder if you can uh, kind of discuss the mainstream versus centrist concepts, because, I mean, my take on all this is you really need to, uh, a wacko out there, environmentalist, to come in and really make things happen and shake things up. But you also need somebody who's mainstream to kind of migrate public understanding and thought to, um, to where that, that radical idea is. It, 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 they work in different ways. I mean, <clears throat> there was a, a story about a guy named, I think his name was John Cam, who was very influential in China in freeing dissidents who were imprisoned by the Chinese government. Uh, there was a front page New York Times article, magazine about, article about him a number of years ago. Now he was one of these classic insiders. He spoke Chinese, he went inside, he schmoozed, and he got 200 uh, prisoners released by the government. He was by far more successful than any human rights organization. But he was so successful because there was always this external pressure as well that was being placed on the Chinese government. So you, need, you have the inside and you have the outside track, and I think that they both have to work together. One of the things that I find frustrating with a lot of activists is that they would rather write a letter to the editor or an op-ed than actually try to call up the CEO and see if that would make a difference, right? So, that, so there's this sort of assumption that public humiliation or public opposition or ad, the, ad, the adversarial approach is the de facto way to cause change. And in fact, it's not. It's probably less effective. And yet, it's, it's, it's the knee-jerk reaction for people who are in opposition to most things, because it's what's celebrated in our history so much, you know? 
wonder if you say a little bit more about the relationship of the entrepreneur and the institution. In my experience, a lot of uh, entrepreneurial organizations fail at just that point. They grow into larger institutions, need shared leadership, need systems and structures that the entrepreneur may be uncomfortable with. It, this, this, it's the same as in the private sector. You have entrepreneurs who hold their companies back, and you have entrepreneurs who are, you know, continue to change and remain dynamic and are great leaders. Uh, I think, well, maybe it's, maybe it's a bit worse in the nonprofit sector because it's harder to get rid of the entrepreneur in the, in the nonprofit sector than it is to get rid of a, you know, someone like Stephen Jobs would never have been fired if Apple was a nonprofit, you know, in his first, first incarnation. Um, so I don't know if he should have been, I'm, I'm not sure about that, but I'm just saying that that's very unlikely. So, so you do have a lot of people who hold back, who hold back their organizations. Um, I think basically the role of the entrepreneur should, should be ideally to, there's definitely a period in the growth of an organization when it's like a sapling and it needs a support structure around it. And that support structure very often is the entrepreneur. And what I mean is it's, it's the belief in something that has not yet been proven. And it's also the growth orientation in growing something that's also not yet been proven. So I don't think Muhammad Yunus is, is needed to run the Grameen Bank anymore. Matter of fact, I don't even think the Grameen Bank itself is, is necessary for microcredit to continue to flourish. In a sense, they've, they've created the, the sustainability in the best sense, which is the sustainability of an idea rather than a single institution. But I think that probably if he left, the organization would probably over time become less innovative and less risk-taking, unless someone came along who was more so, because that's his temperament. And in Bangladesh, there tends to be more of a, a, more of a historically a temperament of, uh, you know, keeping your head low a bit and not, not messing with what's already there because of the fact that uh, so many people who stick out in society are, are penalized for doing that. So, so I think in that case, losing an entrepreneur can lose some of the innovative quality in certain institutions. One more? Who wants the last word? Uh, how important is funding the lack of funding would really force them to find creative solutions and new business models. Say, say that again? How important is funding for social entrepreneurs? Was the lack of funding, private funding, what really makes social entrepreneurs creative and paint new business solutions crimes? Were you able to hear that? How important was the lack of funding to social entrepreneurs? Yes. Oh, okay, okay. So the, the idea that necessity is the mother of invention? Very, very important. I mean, look at the example, the two examples that I gave at the beginning, the Grameen Bank and Childline. Childline is, has a model now where they have street youth all around the country being sort of para-paramedics. Extremely cost-effective. The Indian government would not pay for, you know, a system that went around, that went across the, the country that was very expensive. They're not that motivated for child protection, actually, you know. But child loan was extremely inefficient. And why? Well, Drew said, hey, all these people who we've always thought historically were the, were the beneficiaries, were the problem, well, they're actually the solution. And Grameen Bank did the same thing. You know, Eunice said, well, everybody says that you can't bank with poor people. Well, they say that because they have a preconceived notion of what the administrative costs are of banking with poor people. But if we change that and we allow poor people to actually self-manage 95% of their loan activity, 
and the job of our bank workers is just to essentially be troubleshooters, we have a totally different cost structure. And so in both those cases, the co you, know, you know, Eunice actually said to me once, he said, the best thing that ever happened to me is that I, I never worked in a bank because I would have tried to imitate what I had seen. You know? And so that fresh perspective and also the need to do something at a very low cost led to the innovation.